Chapter thirty three of One Life One Love by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirty three Ambrose Arden's Confession. To morrow morning, before the day is old, Claude Morel will expiate his last and worst crime on the scaffold. He is now sitting in his condemned cell writing his confession, the story of the murder in Denmark Street the hideous history of his crime and of mine which he has sworn that he will leave behind him to-morrow morning to be published broadcast to all civilized europe before to-morrow night this room where i sit in the deep of night in a silence rarely broken by some belated footfall in the lane this room lined round with books mute companions of my joyless manhood is my condemned cell the day that will dawn in a few hours will be as surely my day of doom as it will be claude morel's the sentence of death that was pronounced upon him was a sentence of death pronounced upon me his fate involved my fate when i made him the instrument of my crime i made myself his slave oh my beloved the only idol of my life it is for you i write the history of my sin no other eye but yours need ever look upon these lines unless you so will it and i do not think you will expose this dark record of weak passion and unscrupulous crime to an indifferent public let the world know my story only as it will be told by my accomplice a ghastly story cruelly and brutally told no doubt these details of my temptation and my fall are for you alone for you who may perhaps execrate my memory just a little less if i urge my one plea for mercy i loved you with a love that was stronger than honour or manhood stronger than all the instincts of a life that had been blameless whilst it was passionless a love that made me a villain i first saw claude morel at an italian public-house in greek street where i went to distribute some money collected from a few of my friends among the distressed communists who had come to london for a refuge and who were some of them almost starving most of the people assembled in that upstairs room over the tavern bar were depressed and dispirited by their necessities and had very little to say except to express their thankfulness for the aid which i took them but morel had a great deal to say about the political situation in france he spoke well and i was interested in his fervid eloquence and in the latent passion which burned in every phrase i put him down as a dangerous man in any country a firebrand in such a city as paris he heard en passant that the friend who had given more than half the sum i had collected was robert hatrell i saw the startling effect of that name upon him and i was hardly surprised when he followed me into the street and began to question me about my friend i was surprised however at the malignity of his speech and the intensity of malice which betrayed itself in his tone and manner he told me the story of a sister's wrongs she had been fooled and duped by a wealthy englishman who coolly refused any reparation for the wrong he had done for a girl's blighted name and broken heart he was not very explicit in his charges but this was the kind of thing which he gave me to understand and he was just as vindictive as if he had been certain of his facts i heard the true story of the case from your husband afterwards and he gave me his honour that his worst offence had been a sentimental flirtation with a grisette an innocent unsophisticated girl with whom he had been almost seriously in love his attachment had just stopped short of a serious passion and he had but just escaped the folly of a low marriage i believed my friend's statement and thought no more of morel's malignity which i did not suppose would ever take any overt form though i considered it my duty to warn robert hatrell of the existence of this vindictive feeling and to let him know that his enemy was in london he laughed at the man's threats and the subject was dismissed by us both 
i had almost forgotten it when i met morel in gower street one afternoon on my way from the museum to the metropolitan railway station he told me his troubles the difficulty of getting employment his schemes and inventions which sounded chimerical in the last degree and his want of money he talked again of my friend hatrell but i stopped him peremptorily i have heard your sister's story from my friend's own lips i said and i am convinced that your version is a tissue of lies he was furious at this he upbraided me for believing a gentleman in preference to a man of the people it was the old story the well-born seducer could always escape the consequences of his wrong-doing but for once in a way the world should see that retribution may follow wrong robert hatrell had broken his sister's heart and had grossly insulted her and he meant to be even with him he asked me for a half a sovereign but i had only a few shillings about me so he gave me a card with a written address upon it begging me to send him a post-office order next day i have since discovered that he had appealed to your husband for money and had been sternly refused and no doubt that refusal was a more unpardonable offence than any sin against his sister it was within a week of this accidental encounter with morel that i received an unexpected visit from my father's old lawyer he came to lamford in order with his own lips to communicate some very wonderful news a second cousin of my father's had lately died in chicago leaving me his residuary legatee and with some insignificant exceptions the inheritor of a large fortune acquired in trade i had never even heard of matthew arden who had begun life with a small estate in the east riding where he farmed his own land and had ended life as one of the richest merchants in chicago for me this fortune was a fortune dropped from the clouds i was astounded but hardly elated by this sudden change from poverty to wealth the studious life i was leading was the only life i should ever care to lead money except so far as the indulgence of my taste as a collector of books could be of very little use to me and even my taste in books was inexpensive i did not pine for tall copies or rare editions all i valued in a book was its contents at this time i had not attained to the fine instinct of a collector i told my old friend that i should make no difference in my mode of life and that i should tell my son nothing of this change in our fortunes for some time to come i begged the good old family lawyer to exercise the discretion which had always been his distinguishing quality and to take care that no newspaper paragraphs descriptive of my unexpected luck had their source in his office when the lawyer left me i sat alone among my books and thought over the change in my fortunes a stroke of luck which would have made most men half mad with joy left me cold what could wealth give me nothing for it could not give me you yes clara it was of you and you only that i thought as i tried to estimate the value of these riches that had fallen into my lap what was their worth to me what could they do for me what could they buy for me nothing 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 i was still a young man i was not ill-looking and i had some pretensions to intellectual power hitherto poverty had exercised its restraining influence upon me i had lived obscurely remote from the world i might now if i pleased make a figure in society live in a fine house and surround myself with fine people i had no more inclination to do this than i had to head an expedition to the north pole society had no pleasure to offer me neither house nor garden nor stable had any attraction for me i was not a sportsman i was not a yachtsman i had never felt the faintest interest in a race on land or water i had but one passion one dream 
one desire upon earth or beyond the earth and that was you my whole being resolved itself into one ardent longing to win you i loved you from the first day i saw you oh god how vividly i can recall that first day and hour that casual meeting which decided the whole course of my life for good or evil your face flashes out of the shadowy distance beyond the lamplight a vision of gladness and beauty as it shone upon me that clear october morning when you stood before me leaning against your husband's arm newly returned from your honeymoon a two months bride you remember our first meeting clara how i looked in through the open gate and saw you standing deep in conversation with your husband and his architect who was holding an open plan for you both to look at i had made mr hatrell's acquaintance a few days before when he came down to lamford alone and we happened to travel in the same railway carriage he introduced himself to me as my future neighbour and insisted upon giving me a lift in his fly from the station though i told him it was my habit to walk home i want you to tell me all about the neighbourhood he said this had broken the ice and on the second time of seeing each other we exchanged friendly salutations through the open gate and then as i lingered a little he called me into the garden and introduced me to his wife i remember your courteous greeting so courteous yet so careless how could you dream that i was to be so potent a factor in your sum of life how could you guess that the lovely face which you turned towards me so unconscious of its power was to change the whole current of my existence to make me first your passionate lover and next your husband's murderer yes clara his murderer from that hour i was foredoomed to do evil for your sake i was fated to blight your happiness and to miss being happy even though i gained the wages of my crime what did i think of you that day only that you were the most enchanting woman i had ever seen and that robert hatrell was a man for all other men to envy my thoughts went no further than that on the first day i thought of your loveliness as i should have thought of some rare flower the white chalice of the victoria regia floating in the faint tropical haze of a still water-pool the pale purple or vivid gold of some fairy-like orchid something delicately beautiful that did not come within the scope of my life i had no more definite thought of you than that yet afterwards i knew that i had loved you from the first the change was in myself not in my thoughts a slow consuming fever was kindled in me that day which has never ceased to burn little by little by infinitesimal stages it has burnt up heart and brain your husband liked me and you were always kind for the first years of our acquaintance we met but rarely and it was not till you were established at river lawn that i came to be intimately acquainted with you both and gradually to be almost one of the family daisy was the link which united us i had the good fortune to win the child's love and this assured me of the mother's friendship you loved books while your husband cared little for reading or any intellectual pursuit being above all a man of action i was able thus to supply something wanting in your life and to fill a place which he ought to have been able to fill i was the adviser of your studies and the sharer of your ideas i felt sometimes as if i were the husband of your intellect as he was the husband of your heart had i ever seen any wavering in your fidelity to him any weariness of the tie that bound you to him i do not believe that i should have tried to turn it to my own advantage i could not have degraded you by one unworthy prayer i could not couple dishonour with your image there were times when our calm friendship our mutual love for your child which kept us in touch with one another seemed to me almost enough for my happiness 
i felt as if i could have gone on contentedly thus to old age making a quiet third in your life now with your husband now with your daughter always subordinate the shadow beside your sunshine and then while i was cheating myself with these calm thoughts a wave of passion would sweep over my being a demon of jealousy would rend and tear me and i could not endure to be with you in the serene atmosphere of domestic love your husband's every look and every tone tortured me you have both of you reproached me sometimes for keeping aloof for burying myself among my books and shunning the hospitalities of riverlawn if you could have seen me in those supposed studious intervals you would have seen a man possessed of devils given over to perdition imagine these years of alternate storm and calm imagine a mind and heart burnt up by one devouring passion worn out with the monotony of despair and then think what my thoughts must have been as i sat in my solitude and brooded over the worthlessness of my newly acquired wealth had you been free fortune would have meant everything for me had you been free the widow of a rich man it would have been a hard thing to approach you as a pauper my pride would have revolted against owing all to you fortune as well as happiness but now now that i was rich your equal at least in fortune my motives could not inspire doubt even in the meanest mind were i to wed you no malicious worldling could ever say of me he gained all that by lucky marriage were you but free i began to meditate upon the uncertainty of life and to picture to myself the accidents and sudden unforeseen diseases by which men as young and vigorous as robert hatrell are sometimes taken away i thought of railway accidents and imagination conjured up the picture of some such catastrophe in all its vivid detail an engine off the line a coach or two wrecked and robert hatrell lying dead upon the side of the embankment i pictured the sudden horror of his homecoming upon the shrouded bier your agony your tears i passed over those lightly thinking of how it would be my lot to console you slowly patiently to win you back to happiness and a new love i never doubted your love for him i knew that your heart was entirely his but i thought i had an influence over your mind which would speedily ripen into love he being removed i understood you so little you see clara i had not fathomed the mystery of your heart he has been dead nine years and you love him still you have never loved me i thought of the river saw him rowing towards the sunset with his strong slow stroke in such a scene as our english landscape painters love the village church beyond the low line of rushes the clustering willows pale in the evening haze the glory of the sunset behind church tower and tall elms i thought that even on that placid river there were possibilities of danger a boat of silly chattering cockneys upset a strong man swimming to their rescue and losing his life in the struggle to save those unknown lives such things have been i thought of fevers which seize men suddenly in the full vigour of youth i thought of insidious diseases which creep upon a man unsuspected and sap the citadel before he knows that death in one of his numerous disguises is at the door last of all i thought of morel and his threats of vengeance i laughed at the notion harmless thunder no doubt it is common enough for angry men to threaten but threatened men live there was something in my recollection of claude morel which made me dwell upon his image in that long reverie as the lovely light of the june afternoon slowly faded and the gold of the western sky shone into my room dazzling my dreaming eyes i recall the colour of the sunset the feeling of the air as it gradually cooled into evening 
i recall every half unconscious impression of ours which marked the crisis of my life and saw me change from an honest man to a villain there were in morel's tone and manner certain indications of a malignity which i had never seen in any other man there was a concentration of purpose a resolute intention to injure which must ultimately take some definite form i told myself unless cowardice should intervene and i did not think morel a coward the man had so little to lose his fortunes were desperate enough to make him daring what if the opportunity arose and he were to murder the man he hated the man who had refused to help him in his distress i implicitly believed robert hatrell's account of his love affair and i did not give morel credit for caring much about his sister's reputation he had tried to make money out of the englishman's caprice but he had failed ignominiously hence and hence only that rancorous hatred he was of the temper which in the hour of misfortune would turn like a tiger against the fortunate the temper of men who surge up out of the paving-stones and gutters of every great city in the time of revolution and who do evil for evil's sake upon the conscience of such a man as that murder would sit lightly what if he really meant murder i pictured that sinister figure lurking in the rustic lanes lying hidden in a dry flowery ditch under the spreading hedgerow ready with pistol or knife when his enemy passed by opportunity why if he meant murder it would be easy enough for him to create his opportunity but when the thing was done when that gnawing rage had satiated itself there would be nothing gained but the gratification of his anger and there would be the hazard of the gallows the murderer's craft may minimize that risk the old saw that murder will out has proved a lying proverb of late years the art of murder has progressed with the march of civilization and the modern murderer is more than a match for the modern policeman i recalled a murder which had interested me curiously years before when i read the account of it in a london newspaper i being then remote from london amid the stillness of the welsh hills it happened in the days when trade union was called conspiracy and when the law of the land bore heavily upon workmen who banded themselves together against their employer a certain set of men had conspired there had been outrages and violence in a certain northern city and attempted arson the ringleaders were denounced by one of themselves were tried found guilty and sentenced to transportation for life the man who betrayed them dared not remain in his native city there he knew himself to be a marked man but he thought he would be safe in london under an assumed name he came to london got employment readily for he was a clever workman and funded the price of his treachery as a nest egg for his old age going homewards one day at his dinner hour he walked along a quiet street in soho which he was in the habit of passing through daily midway this street is intersected by a narrow alley as the man came in front of the opening he was shot dead by someone standing in the alley waiting for him to pass no one ever knew what hand fired the shot it was in broad daylight in the heart of a busy district but the murderer disappeared as easily as if he had been spirit and not flesh i tell you of this long-forgotten crime clara because it was the nucleus of evil thoughts which slowly took the form of murder my wicked scheme did not shape itself all at once for many days and nights i was haunted by the image of claude morel haunted by the tones of his voice the lurid light in his eyes when he talked of his enemy again and again i found myself mentally measuring the force of that hatred which had expressed itself in biting tones and malevolent looks did it amount to so much or so much or so much 
was it really strong enough to plan and accomplish an assassination in broad daylight in the streets of london a deed as daring as the murder of the workman who betrayed his comrades all this time my life went on upon the old lines the calm monotony of rustic surroundings the unvarying graciousness of your friendship your child sat beside me at her books under the willow or hung upon my shoulder in her exuberance of love and there was no instinct in her childish mind to warn her that the man she loved and trusted had given himself over to the powers of hell i am not sufficiently orthodox to believe in a personal devil any more than i believe in a personal god yet in those days i could not divest myself of the feeling that wicked influences outside my own existence had got hold of me that the hideous hopes and schemes that i was forever revolving in my mind were prompted by a power of iniquity greater than my own while the wicked web was slowly spreading the man who was the incarnation of my own sinful longing appeared upon the scene he had written me two or three begging letters after that chance meeting in gower street and i had sent him small sums of money such amounts as a man of my supposed means might send to such an applicant these concessions had made him bolder and he came to my house in the dusk of a summer evening having walked all the way from staines he had just the railway fare to staines he told me and no more i took him in and fed him and let him sit at my table and vapour about his inchoate inventions all burked for the want of capital i let him talk of your husband and i answered all his questions about the man he hated i told him of robert hatrell's happy and peaceful life his prosperity his last fancy for sinking four thousand pounds in the purchase of a few acres of land to increase his pleasure-grounds in your native south i take it you would be able to buy an olive wood and a vineyard with that money i said he nodded yes and went on eating and drinking in a meditative silence now were any man as savage a foe to robert hatrell as you pretend to be i said after a long pause he would have a good chance of taking his revenge and making his fortune some time next week he looked at me wonderingly and i explained that hatrell would have to pay for the land and bank of england notes it was an old-fashioned etiquette with solicitors to expect to be paid in bank-notes even when a man's cheque was as good as the bank paper hatrell would go up to london on an appointed day cash his cheque at his bank and then carry the money to the solicitor's office i told him casually the name and address of the bank and the name and address of the solicitor and i saw him sitting there before me with his eyes kindling like two burning coals and his underlip trembling curiously as his halting breath came and went hatrell and his money will be safe enough he muttered at last a man can't be robbed and murdered in broad daylight in such a city as london there you show your foreign ignorance of our manners and customs i said and then i gave him the brief history of several metropolitan assassinations which had occurred within my memory he became very serious and silent sitting before his empty plate with his chin drooping on his chest his inky brows bent in a thoughtful frown suddenly after an interval which seemed long he lifted his head and turned and looked at me with a devilish cunning in his eyes you hate robert hatrell as much as i do he said you are in love with his wife i dare say nonsense i am only trying to prove to you that all your talk about hatred and revenge is so much melodramatic bluster and that you haven't the slightest intention of injuring my friend your friend your friend he repeated mockingly and then after another interval of silence during which he walked over to the window and stood looking across the placid summer twilight in the direction of river lawn he came over to me and stood in front of me 
looking at me fixedly and emphasizing every sentence with a sharp rap of his knuckles upon the table you want that man killed so do i cela se comprend i would kill him for sixpence kill him for the mere pleasure of making him understand that he was a fool to trifle with claude morel's sister and a greater fool to insult claude morel i take too lofty a view of the situation perhaps that is in my blood we provencals do not easily pardon an injury or an insult i would kill him for sixpence but i would much rather kill him for four thousand pounds you say the purchase is to be completed next week i nodded yes my dry lips refused to speak let me know the day and hour let me know if you can the route he is likely to take from pall mall to lincoln's inn fields give me twenty pounds to be ready for what i have to do and in order that i may have a few pounds about me to get out of england in case of failure do this and you may lie down to-night secure in the thought that robert hatrell's days are numbered and that his wife will soon be his widow i gave him two ten-pound notes without a word i'll think about the other part of the business i told him remember if i am to act you will have to be prompt and decisive he said i can't stir a step without exact details i shall shift my lodgings to-morrow so as to be near the scene of action my present quarters at camden town are too far afield his devilish coolness was too much for me i told him i had been talking at random i meant nothing except to test him he had proved himself a greater villain than i had thought possible and i never wanted to see his face again you will think better of that he said i'll telegraph my address to-morrow morning and i shall wait for your instructions not till the last moment not till i crossed the threshold of the post-office at reading an hour after your husband left for london on that fatal day did i make up my mind that i was going to do this hideous thing again and again and again with agonizing iteration i had argued the question i had told myself that this horror could not be that i ambrose arden was not the stuff of which murderers are made and again and again and yet again my thoughts had gone back to the pit of hell and i had pictured you free to return my love and i had thought that such love must finally win its reward that in all intense passion there is a magnetic power which can compel responsive passion as fire will spread from one burning fabric to another that was dark and cold till the flame touched it when your husband left the gate that morning i knew that i must act at once or never i walked to the station caught the slow train that left half an hour after the express by which he travelled and went to reading where the wording of my telegram was not likely to arouse official curiosity i had only one fact to communicate the hour of hatrell's appointment with florestan's solicitor morel knew the locality of the bank and it would be for him to watch and find out the route from cockspur street to lincoln's inn can you think what my feelings were that night when you came over to this house at ten o'clock to tell me that your husband had not returned i knew then that one of the most hellish schemes ever hatched had been carried out to the bitter end and that the murder had been done did judas feel as i did i wonder before he went and hanged himself i did not give myself up to that blind despair of remorse which moved him who betrayed his master i was baser harder viler than judas for i stood that night with your hands clasped in mine pretending to comfort you repeating lying assurances that all would be well 
while my heart beat madly with the thought that you were free and that it would be my life's dear labour to win your love and through those days of doubt and horror i acted my part and hypocrisy came easy to me anything was easy so long as i was with you consoling advising sustaining you leaning upon me in your innocent unconsciousness of the deep flood of passion that surged below the steadfast quietude which i had schooled myself to maintain throughout those days i was haunted by the fear that the murderer would be caught tried and condemned and that he would reveal my part in his crime i feared that which has now come to pass after a respite of nearly nine years then came the darkest period of all my hateful life the period of your illness when your life hung in the balance when every day that dawned might be your last on earth i lived through that time a time of fear and trembling which i shuddered even to remember years afterwards and then and then came my great reward the reward of treachery and bloodshed base betrayal of a noble friend a long tissue of lies and hypocrisies then after years of patience during which i had shrunk with an unconquerable hesitancy from putting my fate to the touch i had the price of my sin your love no that love for which i had sinned was no nearer my winning after seven years apprenticeship than it was while my victim lived you gave me gratitude gratitude to me who had blighted your happy life you rewarded me for the steadfastness of a friendship which in some wise linked my image with that of your murdered husband oh how you will abhor my memory when you look back upon your self-sacrifice your generous payment of a fancied debt how you will hate yourself for having been trapped into a loveless union with a man who plotted your husband's death who was to all intents and purposes his murderer well it is all over now i grasped the dead sea-fruit and tasted the bitterness of its ashen core i knew that you did not love me and i was more miserable as your husband than when i waited at your gate as a suitor there were glimpses of paradise then gleams of hope shining on my crime-darkened spirit but afterwards when i had constrained you to be mine when i had won all that fate could give me i knew that your heart was with the dead knots had all spent when our desire is got without content that was the motto of my life then came a new horror a haunting fear of the dead which i take to have been rather physical than mental could i disciple of schopenhauer and hartmann i who had graduated in the school of exact science and reduced every thought and feeling to its logical sequence admitting nothing which my mind could not conceive could i be the sport of ghostly forms and unreal voices i to be haunted and paralyzed by the dread of a shadow i to tremble and turn cold on entering your husband's study lest i should see a pale image of the dead seated where the living man used to sit i to walk those familiar gardens with an ever-present dread of a well-known footstep sounding behind me or when no imaginary sound pursued me with an absolute certainty that i was being followed by the noiseless movements of a phantom i to become the slave of such fears i who believe in nothing beyond the limitations of our understanding who have restricted all my speculations to the real and the finite i knew from the first that these horrors had their source in shattered nerves and broken health i knew that i was as much a sufferer from physical causes as the victim of alcoholic poisoning who sees devils and vermin about his bed yet the thing was as real to me as if i had been the firmest believer in supernatural influences 
and i suffered as much from these false appearances and imaginary sounds as the believer could have suffered that is one form which retribution has taken the other form has been my ever-present sense of disappointment in not having won your heart tortured thus life has been only a synonym for suffering and i can look forward coldly and calmly to the coming daylight when i shall have ceased to live how can i plead to you at the close of this full and deliberate confession how dare i hope that you can have any feeling except loathing for the writer of these lines for myself therefore i will ask nothing i ask only that you will be kind to my son who if morel carries out his threat must bear henceforward the burden of a name blurred by his father's infamy he has a fine character and will reward your kindness his mother was one of the best and purest of women think of him as inheriting her virtues and not my dark and evil spirit it is not in his nature either to love as i have loved or to sin as i have sinned yes you will be good to my son i know clara you will forget that there is one drop of my judas blood in his veins you may know now in this day of confessions why he left us why he broke the tie between him and daisy and shook the dust of his father's dwelling off his feet he had found me out accident had put him in the way of hearing his father's guilt pronounced by the lips of the wretch who executed the crime which his father had only meditated in evil dreams claude morel hunted me out in our house in london and forced his way into my study in order to ask me for money it was not his first attempt upon my purse after our joint crime i had been pestered by letters from him sometimes at long intervals sometimes in rapid succession but i had answered none of those letters and now when he dared to force an entrance into my house i was rigid in my refusal of money i knew what the word chantage means for a frenchman of his temper and that if i once opened my purse to him i should be his slave for ever i was no coward in my relations with that scoundrel although he threatened me with the one thing which i had to fear he threatened to tell you the story of his crime and how he took the first hint of it from my lips he had kept the telegram sent from reading on the morning of the murder the telegram giving the hour of your husband's appointment and he swore that if i denied him substantial help he would tell his story to you and lay that telegram before you i bade him do his worst strong in the assurance that he would do nothing to incriminate himself and that he could not touch upon the subject of robert hatrell's death without jeopardizing his own safety least of all did i believe that he would reveal himself to you as your husband's murderer no i felt that i had nothing to fear beyond personal annoyance from the existence of claude morel yet the memories which the man pressed upon me were so hideous his presence was so intolerable that i would have given half my fortune to be rid of him for ever it was as if my crime had taken a living shape and were dogging my steps most of all did i loathe his presence when he came upon me in my quiet study in this house in the room where his crime and mine had first shaped itself in my disordered mind he had resolved to weary me out i believe and to that end he had taken a lodging at henley he appeared upon my pathway at all hours and in the most unexpected places but i was rock we had several interviews before the one which was fatal to my son's peace of mind and which parted father and son for ever on that particular morning morel overtook me in the lane near my cottage and urged his demands with a savage persistence rendered desperate i suppose by the disappointment of hopes which he had entertained from the hour he discovered that i was a rich man you say that i knew you in london some years ago i said 
and that we had confidential conversations together in this place and that we two together plotted the murder of my best friend you admit that you are a murderer and you ask me to believe that i am one by desire and intention and cooperation with you i choose to deny all your assertions i choose to say that i never saw your face till you forced your way into my london house if you persist in the form of persecution which you have been carrying on for the last six weeks it will be my duty to hand you over to the police and it will be their duty to discover whether you are a lunatic at large or whether you are really the man you pretend to be and the murderer of robert hatwell in the latter case there must be people who can identify you some of those witnesses at the inquest who saw the murderer go in and out of the house in denmark street may still be within reach of a subpoena if you annoy me any further in my own house or out of doors it will be needful for me to take this step and you may be sure i shall take it i had never been cooler than when i gave him this answer i had weighed and measured the situation and i did not believe he had power to harm me be his malignity what it might my crime might be even darker than his but he could not touch my guilt with his little finger without his whole body being drawn into the meshes of the law i knew that and i could afford to laugh at his fury to give him money were it so much as a single sovereign would be in some wise to acknowledge his claim and to establish a link between us there should be no such link and over and above this motive i abhorred the man and his necessities had no power to touch my pity he could do me no harm i thought nor could he but for the accident of my son's crossing the top of the lane while this man was with me and having his attention attracted by the strangeness of the man's gestures as he talked to me the angry flourish of his arm as he poured his rancour into my ear suggested a threat of personal violence and my son followed us in order to protect his father should there be need of his interference once within earshot cyril stayed his footsteps and listened to the end of a savage recapitulation of those suggestions of mine which led to the scheme of the murder and of the sending of the telegram that furnished the information which rendered the crime possible he my son heard the history of my sin heard and believed i stopped at the end of the lane and looked round cyril stood a few paces from me deadly pale looking at me in terrible silence morel turned and saw him stand there almost at the same moment and slunk aside how dare you insult my father with your lunatic ravings cried cyril lifting his stick threateningly be off with you fellow he pointed london words with his stick and morel crept slowly along the dusty road leaving me face to face with my son you don't believe i began but his face told me that he did believe morel's story and that nothing i could say would undo the mischief that scoundrel's tongue had done the story of the telegram had condemned me in my son's eyes and perhaps too my guilt was written upon my brow had been written there from the beginning in characters that had deepened with the passage of time oh god how often sitting among you all within the sound of daisy's innocent laughter i have found the burden of my guilt so intolerable that i have been tempted to cry my secret aloud and make an end of my long agony and now i saw all the horror of it reflected in my son's agonized face as he told me that he could never be daisy's husband that the murderer's son must not marry the victim's daughter oh how she would hate me he cried if years after our marriage she found she had been entrapped into such a loathsome union he told me that he should leave england at once and for ever he was not without pity for me although my crime and the passion that prompted it lay beyond the region of his thoughts 
to him such a character as mine was unthinkable he who could renounce love when honour urged him could not understand the love that makes light of honour truth friendship all things for love's sake his happier nature has never sounded that dark depth and so we parted i wanted him at least to share my fortune there was no taint at the source of this if he were to begin a new life i urged that he might as well begin it with independence and comfort but he told me he could take nothing from me and he was absolute in his refusal i am young enough to make my own way in the world he told me thews and sinews must have their value somewhere and so we parted just touched ice-cold hands and parted for ever end of chapter thirty three end of one life one love by mary elizabeth braddon recorded by celine majeure